Hi, this is Bill Cumby. I'm a teacher at First Church Ministries in Newport News, Virginia, and we're going through the book of Genesis. Uh, today we're actually taking uh, a little way station and talking a little about theology because it plays into what we're, we're studying now. So um, you'll see the, the front screen that we talk about Genesis. Um, the key verse uh, is really 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. And um, we're going to look a bit uh, about theology today. We've talked about the Trinity a bit. One of the things about going through Scripture in a, um, and as it's written is that when you come upon parts where uh, other things enter into and impinge on it, you're able to deal with that, and you're not able to really avoid certain issues too. So next week we're actually going to get into a very difficult issue um, with actually uh, Noah's curse of, of Canaan. And, uh, but today, before we do that, I want to talk a little about uh, biblical theology and uh, covenant and dispensational theology. I want to give you the background on Genesis. Again, it was written to the Israelites when they were being freed from slavery um, uh, in, in uh, Egypt. And they were at Mount Sinai, and over a year period, they, they stayed there, they camped. Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments and the books of the law. And uh, I believe at this point is when um, Genesis was written. Uh, again, uh, conservative uh, biblical scholars would hold that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were indeed written by Moses at the time of the Exodus, uh, which would be about 12 to 1400 BC uh, when they left Egypt. There's a prologue, uh, Genesis chapter 1, where uh, a lot, there's a lot of focus and controversy about the, how scientifically accurate that, um, that book is, uh, that part is. Um, I will say, as I said before, it's the most accurate account of creation uh, from a scientific viewpoint that any culture has. Okay, there's nothing that surpasses it. There's nothing that comes close to it as far as its detailedness and its, its uh, uh, alignment with what we currently think, science currently thinks happened. Again, science changes quite a bit, but uh, it is in alignment with what um, science has said as far as the creation of the universe and the earth. Uh, but it's just a prologue. It is not, it, it's, uh, and if you have not watched Henry V by uh, Shakespeare, Henry V by uh, Kenneth Bragnoff's version of it, I encourage you to look at it and concentrate on the prologue. There's an uh, actor in the very beginning who goes into a prologue to set the stage for that, that movie. It's a great movie, but chapter one is the prologue like that. They're basically giving you the background information so that when he jumps off into chapter two and starts moving uh, about what's going on in Genesis, we have that background. And there's, these are the things that we need to take from Genesis chapter one. God created everything. There is nothing that God did not create. There are no other gods. There is only one God. And then man is created in the image of God. Those are the takeaways from chapter 1. Those are the one things that they were being drilled into the hearts and minds of the Israelites so they would understand what was going on here. And then in chapter uh, 2 through uh, chapter 4, then to chapter 4, we have man in the garden, uh, the creation of Eve, the, um, the union of the two, the temptation, the fall, the uh, curse of the ground and the serpent and the punishment of man and, and woman, and then uh, expulsion from the garden, and then we have the birth of Cain and Abel, and then we have the, uh, the killing of Abel and Cain's 
degeneracy, the line of change degeneracy to the line of Lamech, uh, to the end of Lamech at the seventh generation. And then we have in chapter five, picking back up again from, uh, from God and then Adam and then Seth, and we have the godly line of Seth moving along, and, and, and that ends in Noah and the flood. And then um, chapter uh, five through um, six, eight is again the line of Seth, and then chapter six, nine, uh, Genesis 6, 9 onward is the continuation of the line of Seth through Noah. Um, so, so Noah had Seth. Um, uh, well, Seth had Noah eventually, and then the line continues onward, excuse me there. Uh, you actually see this. In, so Genesis is, is, is actually a compilation of uh, ten generations of. So you see these are the generations of as a prologue. And that's why I say chapter one is actually the the prologue to the entire book, because the first generations of begins in chapter 2, verse 4, and that's the prologue. These are the generations of heaven and earth, and it talks about, again, through the line of Cain and down to Lamech, and then we get the generations of the, uh, the Adam, which continues onward to Noah, and then you get the generations of Noah, and the generations of Noah's son, and the generations of Shem, and we've covered all that. I, I, I have... Um, Again, this I want to go through real quickly so you can see that there was this, this uh, descent through here of Cain and then Seth carried it on and those generations go and this is a little bit fuller one and you can look back over the very long lesson I had last time on all this. Um, and, and I want to touch just on chapter, Genesis chapter 6 uh, verse, uh, verses 9 through 21 because it's the first time the word covenant is mentioned right here. You see the word covenant, but I will establish my covenant with you. And that is the first time covenant is mentioned in the Bible. Okay, so when we talk about that, it becomes very important when we talk about how is the Bible structured, how has God revealed himself over time. And I'm, I'm going to tell you some different viewpoints only so that you can try to find out for yourself what you should be believing in this, okay? And, and it's not that one's right and the other's wrong. It's that there's elements of rightness and there's elements of wrongness in both of these. Uh, and, and there are other systems out there. But I just want to let you know that do not take something, well, so-and-so said this, and that, therefore I believe it. No, Scripture says something, and a person might be able to convince you that that is the right interpretation. But you should never, I, I once remember talking about creation, and I was talking to a guy um, who is Presbyterian, and it's not a knock on Presbyterianism, but, but uh, I, I said, well, but in the Bible it says, he says, I don't care what the Bible says, I care what the Westminster Standards say. And it was like, but that's not the Bible. And, 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 and he was not saying he didn't believe the Bible. What he was saying is they understood the Bible exactly the right way, and so I don't need to look at the Bible. I can look at what they say is the truth. Don't ever make that mistake, ever make that mistake with any teacher. Go back into scripture, take a look at it, talk to other people, because no one is 100% right. No one. Um, so we get the next mention of covenant here. So in, in chapter 9, after the flood, after they come out, God makes a covenant with no one creation. Uh, and, and here, covenant is mentioned seven times. Again, new, there, there are numbers in the Bible that have meaning. There are numbers in there at times. This is a structure, this is a structured discussion here. It starts up here with, behold, I will establish my covenant, and I will establish my covenant, and I never, uh, uh, this is the sign of the covenant. 
and I'm actually going to go into the next slide to show you this is the structure here. You'll see uh, this is a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure is a structure that's, uh, it, it, again, it's a memory aid, but sort of like poetry. You get iambic pentameter, five-foot pentameter, and uh, a lot of English prose was written that way. You get rhyme. Uh, that's very popular. Um, you get uh, yeah, different kinds of poetry like haiku uh, that the Japanese have that have certain kinds of requirements too. This is sort of to help, uh, to help structure it and to help us understand. And what you get is an A and an A prime, a B and a B prime, a C and a C prime, and a D. So it can be, you can have the D in the middle. It could just be A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A. Uh, it could just be two, it could be, but seven, when it tends to be seven, this is how it tends to work out, okay? And you'll see here that at the very beginning, he says, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring. And then he says, I'll establish my covenant, and this is the sign of the covenant, and the sign is the rainbow, and then I will remember my covenant, and remember the everlasting covenant, and this is the sign of the covenant, okay? So I just, I want to let you know that this is an important thing. Uh, Pastor Bob talks about covenants a lot, and, and I encourage you to listen to uh, some of his sermons uh, where he, he goes off in that. He tends not to have a whole sermon on that, but he, he will delve into that. And a covenant is, is, a, um, is generally made, it can be made between two equals, but it's generally made between uh, one who is superior and one who is inferior, and there's a, I will do this and you will do this. It's an agreement. It's a structured agreement. Um, but there are unconditional covenants in which the, the promise is made that I will do this no matter what. Um, here you have a, an unconditional covenant God is making. And God, so it's important to realize, uh, and again, we're not going to go into this. I might, I might uh, open with next time with a little slide on the covenant thing. But there's a promise made. There's a sign given. And there's requirements in the covenant. And here, he may, and the covenant is made with some, someone, or something in this case, because it's the covenant is made with you and your offspring after you and every living creature. And it, it re repeats over and over again, every living creature, each time. I, I actually have here, cut out by the flowers, covenant I will make between me and you and every living creature. So this is a general covenant. Um, it's a, I would call it a covenant of grace, God, a covenant of God's blessing. We'll talk a little about that. Um, and, it, and it has a sign, a rainbow. Now, um, some people say there was no rain before uh, the flood. I'm, I'm not a proponent of that. Uh, but, but regardless of whether there was or not, uh, if there was rain before and there was a rainbow, it does not negate the fact that the rainbow is the sign of the covenant. Uh, later, Abraham is given circumcision as a sign of a covenant, and circumcision was practiced by other peoples at that time. So a sign can be, in a sense, repurposed and take on a special significance, just like sometimes um, certain cultures, I know that they pick up like a stone of remembrance. In fact, we see that even in Scripture here where, where um, Jacob sets up an Ebenezer, stone of remembrance. Um, and so there, this is a sign that triggers off in your mind something. And so signs, the signs of the covenants are very important, um, but they're not the center of the covenant. So we want to talk a little about that too. Um, but the covenant here is with all creation, that he'll, God will never again destroy all of creation. Um, and that, that uh, it, the covenant is made with all of mankind and all, all flesh, all animals. 
Okay, so this is this is really the, the pretty much the heart of the lesson on this, and I, I pulled this off the internet. I don't know who this is from, but uh, but I, I want to talk about that. I've, I have the next slide marked this marked up, and then I have another slide with some summaries here. But I, I thought I want to give the author a uh, his uh, his his due here. I don't know who it is. There's not an author on here, but my, not mark up his his uh, structure before I. I take it apart and tell you what I agree and don't agree with, okay? Um, so this is comparison to theological system. So the, again, I, I've got to get a little on philosophy and a little theology on this. So um, there are two main um, uh, theological systems to try to explain how um, um, Scripture is structured, okay? So we believe there is a structure to Scripture, okay? Now I'm getting a little into philosophy here. There are two schools of thought about how that stru what structure is okay and how it occurs one is is platonic and uh, plato posited that there is a structure out there a true structure and that we just find that structure and then there's a socratic one which says mankind creates a structure and things okay and so it's important distinction here because if you're trying to find what the structure is, there is indeed a real structure. If Socratic, you have a structure, but it may or may not be the right one because it's a, a man-made thing. Um, my favorite theologians are uh, what you would call Neoplatonic, uh, St. Augustine, and stuff like that. I, and and um, Plato would say, the reason a person recognizes a horse, and this is the example given in there, is because a horse has a certain horsiness. There's a certain thing that when someone sees that kind of animal, they know it's a horse type of thing. There's a structure there. And so, and that there are ideals out there. So a, geom a geometrician um, would say a circle is perfect. It has, it's, it, but you can't draw a perfect circle because it's not always, it's not always the right same diameter all around. The circle has it, but we can picture in our mind that there is a perfect circle out there. There's a perfect, and Plato called those things, um, called what we have like forms. There's a, there's a perfect form out there, and we have see the shadow of that here. Um, the reason I say that, and this is a big digression, is it's just to give you my my bias on this. I I do believe indeed that there is a structure there that God created that structure that there is a, a, perfect, a perfectness to that structure. And I'm not telling you what my structure is, is that perfectness, okay? <laughs> it's like that circle, you can never draw, get me to draw a circle and you'll realize just how bad I can be at trying to find the perfectness of something. So, so here we have covenant theology and dispensational theology. And both of those spring out of a biblical theology, okay? And biblical theology is the ground rock, I, I think, of every, every understanding of scripture. And it's not because it's biblical, okay? The, the word biblical theology is a, a, a term that's coined to say that Scripture has unfold, unfolded over time. And biblical theology is the study of theology, the doctrines and how, our understanding of God, how that has unfolded over time through Scripture. It's not saying that it's not contrast with unbiblical theology. It's just the word term biblical theology is the chronological unfolding of theology in scripture. Okay? And so as it unfolds, people have, have the two main viewpoints that have come out of uh, uh, evangelical Christianity have been covenant theology and dispensational theology. 
And covenant theology emphasizes the covenants. And that's why we're, that's, the whole reason we're talking about this is because if you don't understand what covenants are, then you're going to miss a lot of scripture. And covenant theology says it's all structured around covenants. The Bible, God reveals himself progressively through expanding covenants in scripture. Dispensational theology says God has treated people differently at times. So, so the word covenant obviously appears in scripture. We've seen that. You don't see dispensations in there. That's a, that's a, a coin term. Again, that does not mean it's wrong. I always had a discussion with someone, uh, just because a term is not mentioned, like the Trinity does not mean it doesn't exist anymore than the fact that Adam and Eve, uh, it doesn't say they were married, and yet we know they were married. But the word marriage never occurs. It says husband and wife, but it doesn't say the word marriage. Just because the word dispensation does not appear does not make this a bad theology. Now, I do have some quibbles. I come from a covenant theology standpoint here. But I have quibbles with both of them, and I'm going to talk to you about that. I actually think both of them have their purposes to help us understand Scripture. And covenant theology has an unfolding of God's covenants as they, they get, uh, we get greater into the time of Christ and then into eternity. Dispensational theology has that same kind of unfolding, but it, it emphasizes more what were the differences during these time periods. Uh, it's interesting that dispensational theology takes all its time periods from covenant theology. So, it, you know, with the possible exception of the thousand-year reign that you'll see down here, the dispensation of the kingdom, uh, the other other ones line up just the same. So, they, but the, but if the reason they're using the word dispensation is to contrast it to help you uh, us understand that God did deal differently with people over time. And so, I want to go into this. Um, thing and, and, and again, this is my markup now of this. I have some dashed lines in here. Covenant theology emphasizes the continuity of Scripture. Okay, and dispensational theology <coughs> emphasizes the differences, not the discontinuity, because Scripture is not discontinuous, and, and dispensational theologians wouldn't posit that either. But there are differences there, and that that would be posited. I will say that there's a covenant of, um, and I actually marked this up a little bit too close, but there's, there's a uh, covenant of, um, of works and a, a, a Adamic covenant here. Now, again, the desire to trying to find a structure that's there and uncovered has led some covenant theologians to posit there's two prior covenants. Um, I'm sort of, uh, as you see these red dash lines, as I'm trying to get on the uh, line here, if you see these two here, I'm, you need to understand that um, I'm sort of on the fence on these. In fact, I, I'm, I'm leaning towards getting off the fence and being not, that these are not covenants in there, because I think if they were covenants, I think it would have been said. Okay? Um, I, and yet there is a, uh, down here, a dispensation of innocence and a dispensation of conscience. And again, this is all dealing up before Noah. The reason I don't think that there, there may be covenants here is because I think God's trying to do some very special things with covenants. And I think before the flood, it was so, so interesting. If you look at it, it's very interesting. What, very coincidental that between the time of creation and the time of the flood was about 2,000 years. And between the time of the flood to the time of Christ is 2,000 years. And then now we're 2,000 years, too. And I actually think we are in that time. So of course, Paul thought that, too. And he saw it 2,000 years ago. But, but 
But I'm just saying this may be the sub, sub, uh, assumption of the world in 6,000 years, which is very interesting when you think of it from a six-day creation period and the Sabbath that may come, the millennial time period. Um, and dispensational theology is very big on those time periods, and they would emphasize that. Um, I actually think before the flood was sort of God's fellowship with man broken, and basically man was on his own. God did not have a covenant with man. God has promised redemption, but the actual covenant was not, was not started until Noah. And that, again, is going to come into my whole understanding of Genesis, why I'm sort of covering this background with you. Um, there's also, uh, again, this was written, I will tell you this, this was written by someone who, who understands dispensational theology but not covenant theology. So I have some changes in here. Uh, one is, uh, the, it says here, the unity and uniformity of God's people. Um, it is not the uniformity. It's the unity of God's people. Covenant theology says that the believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same. It's the same. Not exactly the same, obviously, because there's a new covenant that's talked about in Jeremiah here, okay? And it, it's, it's contrasted with the old covenant. So there's differences. The covenant theology doesn't say there's differences. It just says those differences are pretty minor. And sometimes it, it downplays it so much that they say there are no differences, which is not true. The other thing here in... in um, in dispensational theology, uh, it says there's a dichotomy of Israel and the church. In other words, two separateness. God deals separately with Israel and the church. I will say that is true of dispensational theology when I, it's not um, currently progressive dispensationalism as a term today, which again would not say, dis, would not say uh, dichotomy. It would say there's a difference of Israel and the church, not a dichotomy, not two separate things, but that there is a difference. There's a difference there. Um, and then the third one, unconditional covenant of God with Israel, um, uh, is something I would not believe in, but a dispensational the theology would teach. And that basically says, again, what you need to understand here is that Dispensational theology says God dealt with Israel and that Israel is a separate entity from the church, okay? And in its worst incarnation, and, and when it first, first incarnated in the Schofield Bible, I believe, in 1907, I have to say it'd be heresy, okay? And you need to form your own thing. So I'm going to say some very harsh things now. I am not trying to be mean or angry or anything else, but I'm saying this. The first edition said that basically... Israel was saved by the covenant of works and, and keeping of the law. And so Jews were saved by keeping the law. They weren't saved by the blood of Christ. They were saved by keeping the law. And then in, in eternity, they were going to live on a new earth that was provided. The new heavens and the earth, well, the earth was for the Jewish people, and the heavens were for the, the uh, church. I have to reject that strongly. I just have to say that's heresy. There is no dispensational theology that's taught in any university. And Dallas was one of the first that came out with this. Dallas would disavow that now, okay? Because God is, you, people are only saved through the blood of Christ. Old Testament, New Testament. It look, the Old Testament, they look forward to Christ. And the New Testament, we look back in, in Christ. And I, I mean, it's, it's obvious because Jesus said to the, the Pharisees in John, he said, Abraham looked forward to my day. He saw it, and he was glad. 
Abraham was saved by the blood of Christ. He, he, he wasn't saved by keeping a law and circumcising himself. And in Romans, Paul picks up on Abraham and says, Abraham is the father of all who believe. So I have to say that there's a difference there in how he dealt with it because the law was the structure that he used us to help us understand that we needed Christ. And then when Christ came, we could look back and see that Christ came and the need for Christ. But so there's a discontinuity there, but not a discontinuity of how a person is saved, okay? Nor is there a discontinuity about eternity. Abraham's not going to be down on the earth while we're up in heaven. That's not happening, okay? There is one faith. There is one faith, one unity to Scripture, and in eternity, we're all in this together. And I hope to be with Abraham and, and other Jewish believers that are there. I hope to see King David. It'd be a sad thing to think that there, there, there's a separation there. Now, now a dispensationalist said, well, well, it's not total. I mean, you can go to and fro probably. But I'm, I'm saying um, that's not true. And again, um, progressive dispensationalism now downplays that. And they will not say there's a difference there. Okay? But when it first came out, it was salvation through works for the Jewish people, and it was salvation through Christ for the thing. That's heresy. It's, it's heresy. Um, only one way to God, through Christ. Um, did Abraham know the name of Jesus? I don't think so. Well, there's no indication of that. And yet, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad of it. So, did Abraham know Jesus? Yeah, he knew him. The words might not be exact, but he knew God. He knew God. He knew Jesus. He knew the need for that sacrifice because he was willing to sacrifice his own son. Um, so here we have covenant theology believes there is no distinction between Israel and the church. And actually, that's not true. Covenant theology believes there is a difference between how Israel and the church are saved and their uh, uh, um, are saved in their eternal destinies. I shouldn't say their eternal destinies because their eternal destinies are the same. But how people are saved, um, oh, I'm sorry. Covenant theology believes that there is no difference between how Israel and the church are saved in their eternal destiny. So covenant theology, again, I marked this up late and didn't, uh, didn't actually do it exactly how I would uh, could know it today. So, and then la lastly, the church in the bottom here, the church is the kingdom, therefore there will be no tribulation or thousand-year reign. Now, I will say that covenant theology tends towards amillennialism, and that's not a belief that there's not a millennium, but that God is now reigning on enthroned, and this is the millennium, lasts more than a thousand years, but it's the idea is a long reign, okay? So covenant theology leans towards that, but it does not require that at all. A thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign, um, it, can, it can be in covenant theology and dispensational theology, and I am a believer in a literal thousand-year reign. Okay, so, so there's, as I say, you need to understand Scripture well enough that you can, well, this is confusing. Well, then you need to spend some time thinking about this. This is, this is why we're taking the time today, is not to teach you what to believe, is to teach you how to think about what you need to think, you understand, and you believe. So um, uh, I, I want to uh, let's summarize this in a, in a little better slide than I had before. So covenant theology emphasizes the unity of God's people, our common salvation, our common eternal destinies. 
It refers to covenants noted in Scripture. Sometimes it posits additional covenants, such as the one with Adam. I, again, I'm not, that's not a requirement, but this is the thing, is when you tend to see the structure, you try to make it as symmetrical as possible, um, and you to understand the gap that might be there, and sometimes you fill in gaps that aren't really gaps there. So um, the covenants mentioned in Scripture include the major covenants talked about in Scripture include the Noah, uh, Noahic covenant with creation, sign is the rainbow. We're going to be getting into Abraham in a couple weeks, maybe a little more than a couple weeks, but a few weeks. We're getting into Abraham where the promise is to bless his descendants and the sign is circumcision. And then we're going to get into M Moses uh, in Exodus. We might probably not get there. Uh, I'm not sure if that will be the next book we teach or not, but there's a promise to bless Israel, sign of the law. And then there's David with the promise, uh, promise that descendants will rule. So the, the Davidic covenant is this, um, that God said you will never fail to have a, uh, a descendant sitting on the throne. The sign of that, in my opinion, I have question marks after that, is the law. I mean, Solomon. So after Moses, we don't know what the sign of the covenant is. It doesn't say explicitly. We think it's the law. Um, and then, and I would say that Solomon is probably the, the Davidic sign of the covenant. In other words, Solomon epitomizes that there will always be a descendant on the throne. Um, the law epitomizes, the, again, the uh, blessing to Israel. He gave them the law as a sign. Okay? And we'll, we'll, again, we get into these, we'll talk about these more. And then there's the new covenant. And the new covenant is the big covenant. And in fact, I have a slide on that afterward. So, so um, the new covenant posits that God will live inside of us. Okay? And that's, that's what's coming. So we, we get, I will, I will bless creation. I will take a people and, and bless the descendants. I that will have a nation that I call out that I will bless with the law, my, so they will understand what I, what, what I desire and how he, they should live. And then there's a kingdom with David where he says, I will give you good rulers, just rulers. And then, you'll, um, uh, then there's the new covenant where God comes to dwell among us. And so that's covenant theology. So dispensational theology emphasizes how God dealt differently with people over time. And he did deal differently, okay? Before the flood, no one judged another person. In fact, if, if someone wanted to hurt Cain, he was going to be avenged seven times. God said he would avenge him. Afterwards, there's government given, and, and, and there's, a, there's a judgment there, and there's nations and stuff. And after... The, the law, when Israel's taken out and the law is given, there's a different dispensation where God deals with Israel differently than he deals with the nations around other, other places. And then, then we get the uh, Davidic um, rule where, where, again, there's a difference between the rule of David and, and other kingdoms afterwards, the Syrian kingdom, Babylonian, the Egyptian. And then we get the new covenant. Um, so there are differences in how God dealt with this over time. Um, and dispensations tend to be aligned with mentions of covenant in scriptures. You'll get the same basic divisions as you get in either one. And that's not saying that, that uh, uh, dispensationalists are copying off the covenants but not acknowledging that they are. They're, they're saying that covenants do structure scripture by the differences of those covenants, not by the unfolding engulfment of those covenants. Um, I, this is another 
problem I have with dispensationalism. And, and this, this, I want to take a little bit of time and then we'll be done with this. But I want to say sometimes it can dogmatically focus on literalism at the expense of meaning. So I remember teaching uh, the different millennial views one day and, uh, at a church. And a guy who was a dispensationalist said, uh, well, we were, we're uh, uh, it says a thousand years, I believe a thousand years. And I said, no one interprets scripture literally. No one interprets all of scripture literally. And, his, and, and, and I explained that. I said, I said, you don't think that woman on the dragon in Revelation is a real woman given, with 12 stars on her head giving birth to a baby. We know that's Israel giving birth to the church. I mean, everyone knows. I mean, that's obviously symbolism. You see, yeah, but we're more literal than you are. And, and you got, got to give me that. We're, maybe we're not 100, no one's 100% literal, but I'm more literal than you. I, and I just have to say this. That does not make it better, okay? Because if you do interpret that literally, and it's not meant to be literal, then you're interpreting it wrong. If you say... It said the sun rose that day. I believe that one day the sun actually rose, not that the earth rotated, that the sun rose. That's what it says. That's what I believe. And if you don't believe the sun rises, then you're, I'm more literal than you are. That's not a help here, okay? So there can be this real um, a superiority sometimes that come off of this. We believe scripture where other people don't, Okay. And, and that can be really a sea thing. I, you know, the same thing, covenant theology tends to come out of Presbyterianism and structure that. That can be very dogmatic superiority, too. So I, I, I'm just saying, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I realize I have that same trait. We all have the trait that we believe is right, and <laughs> what other people believe is wrong. And, and the, this, the, the literalism can be at the expense of meaning, okay? Um, I do believe there's going to be a thousand-year reign. I do believe it's a millennium. Uh, that, that well, I think actually, quite frankly, that the first 2,000 years was man doing it on his own. The next 2,000 years was God giving a structure for, um, for uh, the world to exist and to grow and, and the, the, uh, thrive to an extent. And then with the time of Christ, the time of the church, we see mankind being redeemed through the blood of Christ, okay? But I think the thousand years is sort of going to be a replay of what it would have been like at the very beginning if we hadn't messed up in the garden. <laughs> I, I, I really think that's, a, and I think it'll be a wonderful time. And I think it's a, it, it's a prelude, it's a prologue to eternity. In other words, it's a thousand years time. It's just, it's just the foretaste of what we have through eternity. And so, I don't know, maybe there will be some differences of Israel and the, and, and the New Testament believers um, because the church includes Old Testament believers. So there might be a difference between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers in the millennium. I'm, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't have those answers, okay? And people that say they have all those answers, they don't have the answers either. You need to understand that. that they may convince you. And that's good if they convince you based on what they're talking about. But if you just believe them because they're always right, that's, that's a bad thing. So um, I, I say that because a lot of churches split over these kind of things. And at First Church, there's a real feeling that we are not going to be let these differences split a church. Okay? And so... You can believe what you like about covenant theology and dispensational theology and fellowship at, at First Church. Um, 
it doesn't mean that it's unimportant. It just means it's not worth the um, breaking fellowship over. And, the, and, 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 and Paul says uh, each one should believe as he is, has the light and, and, and that he was, he was one for the advocate, the unity of the church too. So, so I, I just, I, I, this is important, but don't let it obscure what's going on in your life. And the last thing here is the new covenant. This is the, uh, um, behold, the days are coming. This is in Jeremiah, and I can't close with anything other than this because um, the promises of Scripture, the last covenant, the first covenant was the rainbow when I will bless the earth, the last covenant, the new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of hand and brought them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make in those days in the house of Israel and, and after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Um, again, this is, this is um, where you get into some problem with lit, over-literalism here. When he says, their sin I will remember no more, God can't forget anything. And yet, from our standpoint, it will be like he doesn't remember it at all. You know, and um, but this is the this is the promise here. God dwells with us now. That's the sign is the Holy Spirit. In an Old Testament believer, believers have only ever been saved through the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was the saving um, uh, person of the Trinity in in there through the blood of Christ. But but he was he, the, the salvation was mediated through the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit did not dwell in believers in the Old Testament. David was probably the closest to dwelling, and, and we see the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit dwelling in David at times and all the great things he did. But Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest when they came to him and John the Baptist was beheaded, and he said, what, you, what, you, what, uh, what about John the Baptist? And he says, of all people, John the Baptist was the greatest. Um, um, but anyone who is in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And the thing was, is John the Baptist, actually I, I take back what I said about David, John the Baptist probably was the most spirit-filled of believers because he was you know, Old Testament believers, but he was in the crux of the old and the new. When Christ went, when Christ was crucified, the Holy Spirit was given to us, we see in John, and Jesus said that we have something greater than any Old Testament believer. So think about this. What the gift we have is greater than the gift that was given to Abraham, greater than the gift given to Moses, greater than the gift given to David. Um, we read about these people, and you get it at my age, where I'm now 62, and you get this, and you think, you know, I, I'm a, a small cog in a very big machine in the world type thing, and stuff like that. But the truth is, that's not how it is to God. God cares for you just like He cares for Abraham and David and Moses. And in the kingdom, there'll be a lot of people that we've never heard of that had nothing written about them or nothing documented that are going to be up there with Moses and David and Abraham because they had that relationship. 
And God wants us to use the Holy Spirit in our lives, to change us, to bless us, and make us be a blessing to others. And that's the new covenant here. So I, I do think covenant structure scripture, I think they, 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 the reason, whether you believe that or not, the new covenant specifically says, Jesus specifically says in John, that the Holy Spirit will dwell with you at all times. Um, there are some differences in theology, even there. Charismatic and Pentecostals will say that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit where he comes on a believer in, in a, a new way. And I'm not going to argue with that. I'm just, I will say this. I think the Holy Spirit is with the believer all the time. And I think that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of people grieve the Holy Spirit. And they, there is a different breakthrough where they really let the Holy Spirit have full control of their life. But I tell you this, God is in you now, if you're a believer, and he's waiting for you to draw closer to him and to love him more. It doesn't mean there won't be any more teachers here. This is, again, figurative language. It won't be that you will not teach, you will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. It's not saying there's no more teachers. What he's saying is there's no more teachers that teach you from the outside so you don't have that experiential knowledge. There's no reason, this is why I say, don't ever believe what the teacher says. Believe what the Bible says. Believe what the Holy Spirit is teaching you. Let them convince you from Scripture that what they're teaching is right. Because you have in you the Holy Spirit, which is the arbiter of final truth, along with, with Scripture. Not any other external teacher. We have a blessing here. So I'm going to go again next week into um, a, a fairly hard passage um, that we, we talk about, you know, um, so sometimes we pass over the hard passages and we don't think much about them and other times we really um, get very offended at other hard passages and th this, this one with the cursing of Canaan is one of those. But you know, there was the hard passage we already went over the, was the whole world being wiped out. The, 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 I have to say the cursing of a person, while terrible, is not the same as the destruction of an entire world. And we pass over that. We don't, we, oh yeah, they, weren't, they were unjust and everything and Noah's, yeah. I want to have that perspective as we go into that with Canaan too. Um, but again, God loves us. God cares for us. God wants us to draw closer to him. And he's given the Holy Spirit to do so. So as we teach through the Old Testament, we're going to bring in our knowledge from the New Testament impinging on this too um, as we move forward. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we have. We thank you for what you know for us. Thank you for uh, the um, men of God that you've put before us that have taught different things, um, covenant theology and dispensational theology. And there are godly men teaching both. Um, and uh, there are, are godly men teaching both that have wrong error, have error in each of their teachings. Um, and I, indeed, am among those having uh, probably more than most error in teaching too. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell with us and pull out uh, the stuff that's not true and plant in us the stuff that is true. And uh, help us understand that sometimes you let the, the two differences out there because you want us wrestling with these things. You want us trying to understand who you are better. And though we can't understand you fully, that's no excuse for us not to really, really want to know who you are 
and how much you love us and to deepen our relationship with you. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. We thank you for your great love, and we pray your Holy Spirit dwell with us. We ask in your name. Amen.